Welcome to Free Speech Nation, the podcast. I'm thrilled to welcome my guest, Julie Bindle, who is a journalist, a writer, and has been campaigning against male violence against women since she was 17 years old. She's the author of The Pimping of Prostitution, Straight Expectations, and this book, Feminism for Women, The Real Route to Liberation. Julie, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Um, we will get onto the book in a minute because there's a lot to cover in this, but I wanted to ask you first about how you got involved in this, because 17 strikes me as a very young age to become an activist. It doesn't seem like an, uh, something that most young people would innately just choose. What happened? Well, it was a combination of luck uh, and circumstance. I grew up in a very working class uh, community in the northeast of England. And trust me when I tell you that being outed as a lesbian when I was still at school, and it was a sink school, was not the best fun I've ever had. I can imagine. So, yeah. I, and there was no work. Um, Thatcher had destroyed um, all of the uh, the mining community, uh, much of the um, the industry. So mass unemployment. Mm -hmm. It was 1978 when I was 16. I decided to leave home yeah. and move to a city or or a town where I might be able to get work. Yeah. And as it happened, my aunt lived in a little uh, blue rinse town, as we called it, called Harrogate near Leeds. Yes, I've been. Right, yeah. so uh, th there happened to be a gay bar in Harrogate. I've no idea why. Probably because people were so bored, the straights were going to it. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> I, uh, I met uh, someone who was visiting um, uh, another lesbian of my age, and we moved to Leeds together. Right. And when I got to Leeds, of course, the first thing I did um, was look for the feminists, because I realised at that time lesbianism and feminism were pretty indivisible. Mm -hmm. So where you found one, you found the other. And I had no interest in going to the working class gay bars yeah. because I'd escaped that culture. Mm -hmm. And for the young lesbians who were in those bars, there was a lot of damage, there was some violence, there was a lot of fun, but also some kind of unhappiness that was a bit too close to the bone from what I'd kind of almost run away from. Mm -hmm. So I found the feminists and they were actually almost all middle class. Yeah. And I had no education and they all did. And so they, they were older than me and they mentored me into the women's movement. And of course it was at the time when Peter Sutcliffe was killing women yes. in and around uh, you know, th th that, that city. And so therefore anger about male violence and the police response to it mm. was at its height. So therefore I was in, in the deep end straight away. Yeah, I heard you talking about this in the documentary about, about Peter Sutcliffe and about how men would come up and offer you a sort of passageway home or to gu gu guide mm. you home. And of course your anger I suppose is about the fact that we live in a society where that even would be considered. I mean, I think their gesture was probably well-intentioned, right? But it, it's more about a societal issue, isn't oh, it? Oh, totally. I have no issue with chivalry and good manners, none whatsoever. I do think some of it's born out of a sexist assumption of women's weakness in relation to men. But quite frankly, um, we were scared at that time, yeah. very scared, about this man who was killing with impunity. But we also knew that the home was the most dangerous place for women and girls because of domestic violence, child sexual abuse and the like. And that's where most women are killed mm -hmm. in domestic violence situations. And we also knew that the streets were populated not just by one man whose intent was to harm women, but by several. Yeah. So, of course, if a man approached me or any of my friends to say, can I walk you home, why on earth would we think we were safe? 
Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, that's what someone would do if they were even going to perpetuate violence, wouldn't they? That's what they might do. Well, absolutely. And the, the, the problem is, when, when feminists like me talk about male violence, mm. and especially when I've just said to you, I wouldn't have felt safe walking home with a man who may or may not be chivalrous or who may or may not be a rapist. It can come across as though what we're saying is all men are rapists or all men are potential rapists. We're not. What we know is there are enough men, perfectly sane, nice-looking, well-presented, um, going about their businessmen, who do commit acts of violence mm -hmm. against women, for us to have to be wary of all men in those circumstances. Not necessarily the men we know, but that can happen. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, we have to be on our guard. And I don't think that women really recognise that we go around the world, it, you know, it, our jobs, our home life, our relationships, our social life, feeling that little bit aware, that bit stressed and tense and having to be on guard. It's a yeah. self, it's a, it's a, an unconscious feeling, but that if we really sit and think about it, how outrageous is that that we have to do that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So do you, did you decide that the best way to get into, to address these issues, I mean, you've got the activism on the one side, but then you went into journalism. Now, how did that happen? Or did, was that just a natural thing that came about? I mean, it came about way further down the line. When I first became a feminist and when I was living in Leeds um, between 79 and 87, you know, we, we were doing activism almost constantly and none of it was paid. Mm. Um, and quite frankly, I got involved in the grey economy to keep me afloat. Um, you know, the odd bit of kiting and shoplifting here and there. Only from chain stores. No one's going to judge you here, Julie. <laughs> Only from chain stores. Okay, no, so from, from the big corporations, that's fine. Indeed. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that was quite a nice sideline. I signed on, of course. Yeah. Um, and then eventually I, I met my, my partner who was a respectable person. So I was semi-feral at the time that we met. Yeah. Um, you know, I was 25 and she was just a couple of years older. But she was from an upper middle class background and understood the value of education and also was able to support me getting onto an access course and going to university as a mature student, yes. which I did. And then that led me into academic research on violence against women, yeah. still doing the activism. And it wasn't until I was 40, so in the very early 2000s, I started to think, do you know what, I'm writing all these comment pieces for The Guardian mainly to get the word out about our campaigns. Yeah. I can do this yeah. and I could probably do more than I'm doing now. So I walked out of research and went full time into journalism. And it's interesting now you've produced this book, which which feels very much uh, like a not quite a call to arms so much as a kind of reinstatement of what lies at the core of feminism. And 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 and, and almost as though there is a need now to, to restate the case for it. Was that the sort of motivation behind this book? Definitely. I wanted to write it for young women, and I do not assume that young women want to hear what I have to say. If they do, that's fantastic. If it can be a piece of armoury, if it can be useful for them, then that's great. Even if it's useful for them to learn how to argue against the ideas that feminists like I have. But what I wanted to do is actually define feminism mm. at a root and branch level, because we can do this with the black civil rights movement, with anti-racist anti movements. You know what anti-racism is and what it isn't. 
if you are in that active field. Yes, there's disagreement around tactics and strategies, but yes. it's a bit like the kind of labor movement, the, the, the working class, work, the, the workerist movement. You have a set of aims and principles and you know that what you want to overthrow, what you want to challenge. With feminism, that's different. It's as if women and girls don't have the right to our own movement despite being half the planet. Yeah. So we're told, well, feminism's about choice. Feminism's about being able to lap dance and feel proud of it. Feminism is for Beyonce, for Margaret Thatcher. Feminism is whatever you want it to be. Or as Emma Watson said, um, feminism's about equality for everyone. No, it's not. Feminism is for women. And feminism in recent years has been subverted and misconstrued to something that more benefits men than it does women. So this is really interesting because, um, you see, I, I, I'm not sure I agree that phrases like anti-racism or racism, we, you'd like to think we all know what that means, but actually these days, actually, different people have different definitions of what these things mean. And similarly with feminism, I mean, you've said in your, the subtitle is the real root to liberation. And it does seem like what you were saying is, we need to clarify what feminism actually means. And I've just taken a couple of notes from the book. You say that feminism is about the quest for liberation from patriarchy. And you talk about feminism as a theoretical framework based on the material reality of women's oppression as a sex class. That's really clear. And it, but the thing is, so many young feminists, or not young, but women that I speak to, don't see feminism in the way that you see mm -hmm. feminism. So is that a sort of difficulty? Of course it's difficult, but I think it's an ideological difference, not a generational one. Yeah. But it's played out across the generations because I do think, although young women know their own mind and are extremely strong and assertive in general, there are many young women that have a real lack of confidence when it comes to speaking out in male-dominated settings, such as universities. So it's middle-class women yeah. or working-class women who are told that feminism is you know, what's the point of it? Because, you know, you've got to get your kids fed and you've got to get decent housing and that's all that matters. Yeah. And so the, the personal relationships are put on the back shelf. But feminism is for all women. Feminism benefits all women. But not all women are feminists. Yeah. And there are hundreds of ways to be a feminist, but many of them are counterproductive. So the yeah. whole kind of, you know, feminism is just for, feminism is about choice. Well, of course it is, but what, does choice mean in a world where women do not actually have a right to exercise full choice? So can you explain that idea of, of this idea of, of women as an oppressed sex class? What exactly you mean by that, just in case people aren't familiar with the argument? Okay, so when you say to somebody, um, women are oppressed, which is a crude way of putting it, they'll say, how ridiculous. Look at that um, chief executive of a bank yeah. who's on a million pounds a year and look at that homeless man on the street. Are you honestly telling me he's oppressing her? Well, of course I'm not. Yeah. The point is it's like for like. So that homeless woman on the street next to that homeless man on the street is in danger, of course, of being raped, is in danger of being harassed by homeless men on the street. Yeah. The woman at the top of her uh, career who, I have to say, I'm not interested in the glass ceiling at all. I'm interested in the basement, the mm. women in the basement. But the woman at the top of her career will absolutely be uh, vulnerable to being sacked if she's pregnant, not being promoted, earning less than the man, being sexually harassed at the water cooler, right? Yeah. Like I say, I care less about that scenario, not because I don't care about women being sexually harassed, but because I think that we have a lot to do before we even think about the women at the top of the tree. So right. women, as, women as a sex clash share something in common, and I would say it's only one thing. And everything else divides us and is fragmented. 
But the one thing that we do share is extremely central to our lives from birth to death, and that is the fear and reality of male violence. Yes, which of course doesn't go away irrespective of how rich you are. Absolutely not. So that's where I think we need to galvanise our feminism. Not to pretend that women are united on all fronts, we're not. Most things divide us. But to say, okay, let's, let's forge solidarity between women on this issue and everywhere around the world we will find women together who are countering the kind of abuse that is in their daily lives. Yeah, I mean, you, you emphasise continually in the book this need for feminism to be a collective movement. Um, and do you, are you optimistic that that can ultimately be achieved while there's all these disagreements going on? And I'm thinking, that, you know, the different branches of feminism now. How, how do you, how can you forge an effective collective? I mean, you point out that feminism has to be revolutionary, mm -hmm. not egalitarian. So, but how can that possibly be achieved while everyone does, uh, if everyone disagrees on what it is? And that's the problem, because if you don't have a working definition of feminism, which we don't only have a right to have as active feminists, we have a responsibility yeah. to put forward. If we can't agree on a baseline of feminism, then it really is for just everybody except women. And that's how it's gone. Now, you're right, of course, about you know, not agreeing on what an anti-racist activist is. Yes. So whether critical race theory is helpful and useful in the liberation of people of colour, of black people, because my, my feeling is it, it's the opposite, that it actually well, makes things worse. But I know that's arguable. Well, it's arguable, but it's a point, and it's yeah. a good point. But the, the, the problem with not having a definition of feminism that is real and based on material you know, reality yeah. of women's lives is that it means it's up for grabs from everyone. Now, who are the ones that want to own feminism and colonise it and change it to suit them? Men, of course. Because, to put it crudely, if men aren't threatened in any way by your feminism, yes. then we're doing something wrong. Well, that's interesting because you, you, you were in your book, when you're talking about whether men can be feminists, which you resolutely say they cannot be feminists, and you actually say that, um, how do you put it? You put it up, it's almost like a zero-sum game. You say, why would we want men in a movement with the primary aim of taking away their patriarchal power? So you do see it in those terms, that actually it is a zero-sum game for you. I do, but I really want men to be feminist allies. Right. And, Which you, know, you make clear in the book as well. Yes. And yeah. do you know what? I hate the word ally, but I couldn't actually think of another word. There probably isn't one, is there? No. <laughs> I mean, ally has, been, has become such an oh, awful word. <laughs> Allyship. Yeah. It's cringeworthy, isn't it, a little bit? Better? Oh, it really is. But what I mean by that is um, the men that are doing work to end violence against women. Yeah. And I know them. I've almost got a man in every port, right? So where <laughs> I travel around the world, so in Africa, in South America, across Europe, um, in North America, I have friends who are doing this work yeah. and they're brilliant and they work with other men and they don't want cookies. They don't want praise. They don't want to be um, adorned with a kind of superhero costume and put on the podium as the keynote speaker. Yeah. But having said that, we all do things for our own reasons. None of us are selfless. Yeah. So there has to be a reward. And the reward is, I think, for these men that are fighting alongside women to end male violence, is that they actually know that they will be better human beings and happier for it if they have good relationships with women yeah. and that they're not porn-soaked kind of individuals feeling rage and hatred towards women yeah. because of socialization. Because no man is inherently bad and no baby boy is born bad in the same way as girls aren't born victims. Yes. So 
I absolutely want that, that kind of relationship with men doing this work to be fruitful for both sides yeah. and not to do that whole, you man, go off and stop someone from raping tonight and then we'll talk. Because I, I think a lot of people would interpret or do interpret feminism as being an anti-male thing. Uh, I mean, would you like it for men, more men to read your book, for instance? Oh, I'd love men to read my book. I would, and I think they might get a surprise because, first of all, it might show them what active feminism is. Yeah. So as opposed to the kind of keyboard warrior blue fringe tweeting that goes on that passes for feminism, that yeah. achieves nothing. But I'd also really like men, younger generation, and, and, you know, maybe men of my generation, to understand what has changed and how change in this area is not necessarily or never organic. Yeah. So for example, when I was talking to young women, interviewing young women for the book, most of them had no idea that before 1992, rape in marriage was not a criminal offence. Yeah. And that it was feminists after a long campaign that changed that. I mean, it seems incredible, doesn't it? That relatively recently. Totally. And there are still countries around the world where rape in marriage is perfectly legal. Mm. And of course, domestic violence. But what they failed to recognise, and it's not because older feminists are asking for praise or thanks, but is we have a history here. Mm. Feminism has a history and we have changed things. And these are the laws and these are the societal norms that we have successfully changed. And therefore, if you actually campaign alongside women from different generations, and if you pick up your own campaigns as issues relating to young women today, because so much of the abuse is online, yeah. you can also bring about change. Such as the campaign group that I interviewed, um, We Can't Consent to This, yeah. about the rough sex defence, where men are saying that she asked for, literally asked to be murdered during sex. Mm. Um, or the upskirting um, law, mm. you know, taking photographs or filming up a woman's skirt was not a criminal offence. Young women campaigning have changed that. Yes. There's been all kinds of brilliant changes um, from when I first joined the movement in 79, up to today, but we need young men in particular to understand why we dinosaurs go on so much about our sex-based rights because we had to fight tooth and nail to introduce them because otherwise their own mothers and their aunts would be fleeing with nowhere to go, no refuges, no rape crisis centres. Yeah, I think it is just often that you, you don't think outside your own experience, you know? I mean, I, I had an experience recently where a friend of mine, she's, she's recently moved to a very rural area and said, for the first time I feel it's quite liberating. I just walk out at night and I, I'm not constantly right. looking over my back. And, and of course, I never think about things like that. So just even hearing that kind of story may, wakes you up a little bit, I suppose. I hope so. And, you know, I've, I learned from feminists that were f about 15 years older than me, the, the group that I met. Yeah all those years back in Leeds. Um, and, and my eyes were, you know, ablaze with fascination about it all. Because I, of course, had no idea about the history um, prior to that wave of feminism. I knew very little about the suffragists or the suffragettes. Yeah. Um, and, and I just thought, look, if, if young women understand that change only comes through agitation and campaigning, then they're just going to sit back and think everything bad that's happening to them right now can't be helped and instead what they've got to do is capitulate to it. Maybe it's helpful to outline what, what exactly we mean by the various waves of feminism because you've just mentioned the suffragettes which is what is classified as first wave feminism and then you're often called the second wave feminist which would be the sort of I suppose 1960s 
type of feminist, um, the Jermaine Greer kind of women's lib uh, movement. I think you'll find that Jermaine Greer and I are very different feminists. I know, but, I, but I'm just saying this is the way that the second wave is described. Yeah. Is that unfair of me? Not at all. No, it's just that it's so kind of pointless and also confusing yes, to have these so-called... I thought I want to Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. I mean, obviously, you know, the suffragists and the suffragettes were, you know, the, the, the first active feminists that brought about legal change. Yes. I mean, there's always been a women's movement. There's always been resistance to patriarchy, to male violence. And yep. that was, you know, definitely before those, those movements. And then, of course, there was a resurgence in the 60s and 70s mm. in the US and the UK and other countries as well in the global south. Um, I suppose during the time that people were protesting, uh, you know, it was post-war um, protests to, you know, change the world for the better. But feminism came very much out of the sexist left yeah. in, in the US and the UK. So obviously those women um, were working with men to, I mean, they'd probably started, for example, protesting the Vietnam War. Yeah. And then, you know, they were sort of involved in regular socialist campaigns and realised that the men on the left, just like the men on the right, didn't want them mm -hmm. to become liberated from their own control because that meant them losing their privilege. So the women went off and formed their own movement, which was the women's liberation movement. Yes. Now, I won't use terms like waves because if you think about what happened with that vibrant feminism that I entered towards the end of the height, yeah, yeah. it did peter out and we, it was replaced with something called femocracy. So women who were going into paid jobs, yeah. wearing suits to go to work, working in town halls, um, signing off equality and diversity policies, instead of fighting for liberation. Yeah. Yeah. They, they started to fight for equality, which was a pathetic you know, kind of way to fizzle out that energetic movement. Yeah. But then, of course, there was still, you know, there were always campaigns to end male violence. And, you know, when I, uh, when we set up Justice for Women in 1991, it was probably at the lowest point of active feminism, but it then became revived, yeah. not just because of us, but because of loads of active feminists that had decided enough was enough and we need to get back on the streets and protest outside the courts again. Yes, so at the heart of your brand of feminism, what dist distinguishes it, I suppose, is this emphasis on violence, on the risk of violence. And you even worked with police. You mentioned in your book that you worked in 1994 with police. <laughs> I did. Now, can you tell us a bit about that? Because I, I didn't know this and it yeah, seemed quite was, surprising. That was fun. So, so I came out of university, needed a job, yeah. and a colleague of mine said, oh, we're just starting this... Um, civilian project in a North London police station yeah. where we go out with the police officers to offer the support and the advice to the women while they go after the perpetrators. Yeah. So in other words, doing policing work and policing of domestic violence at that time, it was the early 90s, it was pretty chronic. Yes. It, there was still a lot of prejudice around. Yeah, it was uh, kept in the family very much, wasn't oh, it? People, it, was, people... it was just awful. The way that they talked about the women was just a disgrace. So we were in the domestic violence unit mm. and, uh, oh yes, there was one of the coppers who we called six of one because he used to say, come in every day, well, I went to that DV call out, six of one, half a dozen of the other. It's not helpful. No, he would talk about how much she was drinking, yeah, how there yeah, were, okay. you know, dirty dishes in the sink, that kind of thing. Perpetrators were never really brought in. Then there was a hilarious story, which actually shouldn't really 
make me laugh, but it still does, where a Turkish woman who spoke no English at all had called in a very serious domestic violence incident. We went to the house, she was in an awful state, brought her back to the station, and we used to use something called language line, mm -hmm. where you would ring, it, it was all phone based, and you would say, I need a Turkish interpreter. But there was not one available. Yeah. So the copper, who was about to do the interview with this victim, and she was in a real state, yeah. nipped over the road to the kebab shop and went to get the Turkish bloke that was carving up Donna kebabs. I mean, it's... to cover <laughs> So, you know, in a way, things have got better, haven't they? You know, in terms of the way that the police handle these things and. It, yeah, because we made them. Because we made them. And at <laughs> one stage, I decided when I was working at that project, I don't care actually if these men respect the women, give a damn about domestic violence, think it's wrong of a man to hit a woman. I just want him to arrest the perpetrator yeah. and do right by the victim. I don't give a damn what's going on in his head, anywhere near as much as what I care about yeah. in terms of his action. And so we pushed and pushed and pushed until policies were put in place nationwide so that that kebab shop shit show could not happen again, that be, he would be disciplined. You must be quite uh, gratified that actually all these years of activism and the feminist movement, it has made such a revolutionary difference already, hasn't it? I mean, this must be, and, and yet in your new book, you're also saying there's much, much more to be done. Well, the problem is we're in the face of a horrific backlash right now. Right. So what used to be understood across the board and still is in a lot of hearts and minds, mm. but they get terribly bullied for saying it. What used to be understood was that things like prostitution, um, violent, degrading pornography, mm. Um, and the like, was actually not going to bring about women's liberation. In fact, it was just a tool of our oppression. And now, of course, it's been turned on its head very cleverly by the postmodernists at the universities, yeah. who will have it that if you speak out against the sex trade, of course, the sex trade itself, the abusers, the punters, the pimps, not the women, who should never be arrested, yeah. feminists say, and should always be supported, listened to, speak for themselves. But if you actually speak out about the sex trade, that awful capitalist industry, yeah. much worse than the tobacco industry, but leftists seem to support it, then you are whorephobic, which is one of the words du jour. Yeah. It's relatively new to me, this one, whorephobic, but it's used a lot. And it's a real, I mean, your last book as well, The Pimping of Prostitution, this is a, something that you're very keen to emphasise, but it's also one of the main sources of division, I think, within feminism, isn't it, at the moment? And um, last time I spoke to you uh, on another podcast, I had messages from feminists saying how angry they were at the things you'd said uh, about prostitution and how prostitution should be legal. Do, would you like to clarify what your position on prostitution is and why you think it is at the heart of, of feminism, or the opposition of prostitution is at the heart of feminism? Well, if there was true equality and liberation of women, there wouldn't be a sex trade. Mm -hmm. Because one set of human beings wouldn't actually dehumanise another set of human beings in order to have one-sided sexual pleasure yeah. and to rent the inside of a person's orifice. Um, it, it just wouldn't happen. But then I suppose the counter-argument is always going to be about choice, isn't it? And, and, and one of the, the messages I kept going is, uh, getting is about choices that women have the right to choose right. what they do with women their lives. Absolutely do. Women absolutely have the right, although we don't, but theoretically, yes. women absolutely should have the right to choose what to do with our own bodies. Mm -hmm. And 
this argument, of course, is not about their right. It's about men's right. It's about the right of men to buy them. And it's about listening to an unrepresented, unrepresentative yes. minority of women, such as Brooke Magnanti, who inspired the Belle de Jour TV series starring Billy Piper, mm -hmm. other PhD candidates who fund some of their studies by becoming what I call tourists. You hear about this a lot, don't you? Yeah, you nipping in and out of yeah, it, yeah, you know, yeah. um, thinking it's really cool. You know, when I was in Nevada doing some research on the legal brothels there, which is way worse for the women than, than even prohibition. I mean, the women should never be arrested. Yeah. But the point is that, you know, um, you don't have to arrest the women. You can just actually deter the men, yes. but not have the Wild West, which is what you've got in Nevada, where one woman described these brothels to me as pussy penitentiaries. Right. And the women are locked in. They have to ask permission to go out into the town. They're in the middle of nowhere in the desert, these brothels. But one woman who was doing some research in these brothels at the time, all owned by Dennis Hoff, who thankfully is now dead. She was um, telling this conference that I saw right years later that her PhD studies was based on this question. What age group is more likely to have an orgasm during sex work than others? She was actually talking about women in Nevada brothels being fucked by Johns that they did not want to be fucked by and by John's, you mean the, punt the, the people the who are paying punters. for sex? That's right. Yeah. And what possibility, what opportunity was there for these women to get sexual pleasure? Well, quite frankly, what craziness is this? These women do not have sexual pleasure. Because you've, I mean, you've travelled the world talking mm -hmm. to prostitutes uh, around the world about this. And so you have a very uh, good overview of, uh, and you would say that, because I think there's a misunderstanding about this because when we see on TV, often middle-class women standing up saying, but I, it's, it's empowering right. to me. But of course, you, you would say that's a very minority. We, it oh. looks like the, it isn't the minority, but it is, isn't it? Oh, it really is. Because if you think about it, how many middle-class male students do you know that are flogging their asses at the moment down in some King's Cross CD hotel? Yeah, through desperate yeah. None, none. Yeah. How many men are in prostitution? Well, there are some. Um, there are some gay-identified men in prostitution. Usually the trajectory that gets them there is pretty similar to those women. Yeah. But that everywhere I ever went, and I interviewed huge numbers of women in prostitution, those that had been trafficked, those on street, those in brothels, those under legalisation, those under decriminalisation, prohibition, etc. And they all told me the same story once they've got out of prostitution, yeah. which was it was hell. And that they, they had to keep themselves together during that time yeah. to do that. Now, I went to... A university with a great friend and colleague of mine, Sabrina Valise, who is um, a sex trade survivor, who was prostituted since the age of 15 um, in legal, decriminalised and illegal brothels. And she campaigned for the change in the law in New Zealand that came about in 2000 to decriminalise the brothels. So just complete gung-ho. And she now talks about what an absolute disaster it was because, of course, the brothel owners become managers. Yeah. And what we would normally go, if we were employed and we had to go to an tri employment tribunal against our manager, it would be something like constructive dismissal. Mm. With the women in the brothels, it's literally sexual assault. That becomes an issue for an employment tribunal rather yeah. than a criminal court. So everything's normalised to the point of where it's supposed to be work. But the women know it's not work. 
Anyway, when, when I was in this university debate with against the English Collective of Prostitutes on the one hand, the ECP, that believes that sex work is work, and Sabrina and I, at the beginning, there's a show of hands at these debates, isn't there? Mm -hmm. And vast majority of the students all think prostitution should be legalised. It, it, would, it would completely remove all the harm. By the end, we had turned that around completely almost. I was going to ask about that because that seems to be the, the, the main argument. If, if you decriminalise it, the women are safer. Which is absolutely not borne out by murder statistics in decriminalised and legal uh, regimes. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Germany, Switzerland, Holland, Nevada, to name yeah. but some, all far higher murder rates than countries that have decriminalised it for the women, yeah. but deter the, the punters by threatening to arrest. Yeah. But it, during this debate, Sabrina Valise asked uh, a student who had said, you know, one of the, the kind of privileged blokes, hey, well, you know, I did a shift in McDonald's in the summer holidays and I got burned by hot cooking fat and the boss was horrible to me and it was awful. Why is prostitution a worse job than that? And Sabrina just looked at him and said, okay, take your pants down, bend over and take his cock up your arse now. It's quite a direct approach, isn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> but I mean, you'll get the right answer. Yeah. He says, because that's what, that's what you do in prostitution. Yeah, he yeah. said, or... What did he say to that? Uh, well, he, he sort of went green, but then she continued, because Sabrina's not one to let anyone off the hook. Yeah. She then said, see that bloke there? You don't know when he last had a shower. Take his dick in your mouth now. You see, that's what people... And he went, no, I'd rather work at McDonald's. Well, that's because people are thinking of prostitution in the abstract, probably. Mm. They don't think about the sex. Right, OK. They don't think about the way that the women's bodies respond to eight, ten johns a day. Yeah, yeah. Because even when somebody's madly in love and lost, you don't want to fuck eight, ten times a day. Yeah. Our bodies aren't made for that. Yeah. So the women have awful effects um, on their bodies and on their mental health and psychology. The other interesting thing around this that you raise in the book in particular is how much this relates to class, actually. And, and I think that that is a conversation that extends beyond the question of prostitution, but to more to feminism more, more generally. And you, you do criticise Emma Watson at one point because she, she thinks that women can just choose to be empowered and they're magically empowered. But of course, some people are from circumstances where that's not going to happen, is it? Class is a major issue, and it's a major issue in feminism, and it should be, mm -hmm. because it's never really been high on the agenda. We've never really had a moment where, because look, we've had problems in feminism, in the women's movement, with identity politics. Mm -hmm. So I lived through the 80s when it was all speaking as a Jewish disabled lesbian mother. Yeah. Um, and you know, by the time you got round the room, yeah, yeah. there was no conference to be had because you'd run out of time. You couldn't start a conversation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. There was even a conference once, a fat liberation conference, where one woman was turned away at the door because she wasn't seen to be fat enough. <laughs> Go away and gain some weight exactly. and then come back. I mean, no joke. The identity politics got ridiculous. Yeah. What we've got today, of course, is identity politics with no politics. Yeah and just individual identities that relate to nothing at all. Absolutely. You know, at least though, some of those identity politics, I mean, it went berserk in the end, but yeah. some of them began in looking at structural oppression. And they were rooted to politics, actually, but you know... They were. I it, mean, it got silly. Anyway. It was it, it, it got really silly. It, it really did. Yeah. Um, and I've completely forgotten what you were asking me about. When I was asking about class and the importance of class. So class, class has never really had its moment in feminism, and, and I'm rabid about class, because I, I see... Class is a huge issue where these women are talking about whorephobia or transphobia yes. um, or issues that actually do not relate to women's lives when they are struggling 
to exist in a world that does them no favours. Yeah. And the only moment uh, that, that really dealt with class in, in the early days of the women's movement, which didn't really deal with it, was some working class women who got very angry, who started demanding mm -hmm. checkbooks and money off, off middle class women. Right. Um, and, and it got nasty. There were a few bricks through windows in those early days, I think. Okay. And some women who, even though they'd dropped out of Oxford, were still saying they were working class. Yeah. And, and that happened in the States. I remember um, Kate Millett, who one of the, the uh, most amazing second wave feminists, going round to Andrea Dworkins, yep. ditto, Brownstone in, in, um, in Brooklyn, yeah. and going absolutely mad about the amount of privilege Andrea had when she'd actually... All she had was a house and she worked, you know, 24 hours a day in the women's movement. Yeah. But class should be something that is way more on the agenda than whether somebody um, is sapiosexual or demisexual or gender fluid. And I suppose because um, the entry into prostitution is often through poverty, mm -hmm. right? And that's ab absolutely the heart of it. Why do you think it is, though, uh, that so many feminists um, uh, would prioritise the kind of multiple sexual identities you're talking about, rather than class, which has a kind of material uh, impact on your life and how you can live your life. Because if you just talk about who's sapiosexual, as opposed to who's being abused into prostitution, you have to do nothing at all, except for tweet how brave and stunning. We should probably clarify is. what sapiosexual is. It's when you're attracted to someone's mind, isn't it? Someone who's brainy, yeah? I believe I've got that right. I think you have, yeah. Uh, but, but who knows, because there's so many abrosexual and... Yeah. I, I, I can't even, there's so many. Yeah. But, act, but of course, the, the, the reality of not having any money is, you know, uh, and particularly for, for women in certain circumstances, that's... Of course, if you've got upper middle class kids sat on Twitter mm. and they're talking about being oppressed because they're asexual, but that they're only asexual. I saw something on, on TikTok, which was hilarious. They're only asexual half of the time and the rest of the time they're aromantic, but that might mean that they're aromantic, but they're not asexual at that time. And why can't everybody understand? Yeah. And all you have to do to actually bleat on about that oppression is to sit there on TikTok for 30 seconds and say it. But if you actually deal with a woman who lives on a high rise with three kids under the age of five, who's been beaten by her husband yes. and who's been sexually assaulted by the landlord, you've got to actually do some work. Yeah. You've got to actually really try to make a difference and get to the nitty gritty of her situation yeah. instead of sitting on Twitter and whinging about something that is never going to oppress you in a million years. There's a weird subgenre now of TikTok videos from people who are, they're very, um, they lecture you. They're very angry and they're talking to you about their uh, uh, asexuality or something and they're, they're pointing their finger at you. And it's, but it does reek of entitlement because they're all clearly quite middle class. Have you seen the one with the this teacher, the female school teacher who says that she misgendered a student? I have seen this one, yes. I, I had to watch that again and again because I thought, Tell me this is a parody. She was beating herself up over that. If you go into any school, I did a talk just before lockdown in a girls' school in Hornsey, a comprehensive school near where I live yeah. for International Women's Day, where I went around talking to these girls about their experiences of being sent dick pics, um, being sexually harassed and assaulted in the schoolyard, yeah. things that those girls... Um, could not wait to talk about because it affected their everyday life. Yeah. Imagine that you just had to worry about your teacher misgendering you because that day you're they, them. And in fact, I went to a table to talk to the group that was doing, you know, when you do all these bits yeah, yeah. On, on kind of, um, 
you've got your exercise and you can all report back. So that's why I was going around all these tables talking to four or five girls at a time. And I got to one table and the belligerence was fabulous. You know, it was like the faces were sulky like whatever. <laughs> and I said, hi girls, what have you um, done? You know, what are you talking about? And one of them said, we're not girls. And I said, oh, he said, yeah, we're non-binary. So I said, oh, okay. I said, in that case, why are you in this room? Because this is a girl-only session. Right. But, you know, that was the deal. What did they say to that? Well, we are girls, but we're just they, them. <laughs> yes, I hear that a lot when people say they're non-binary lesbians. That seems incoherent to me, to be honest. But there were soon, soon girls. But I, I wonder, like with that video with that teacher, and she was talking about how she'd accidentally... So the pupil had said, well, I was she, her, and now I'm they, them, and, she, and then the teacher called her, her, right? But, you know, if I was a kid at school and I wanted to cause trouble, that's what I'd do. I'd change my pronouns every other day and I'd make the teacher... Try and get yeah, I mean, you know, when I was at school and I w wanted to get, have a day off or go to the sick bay, I used to pretend I'd eaten mercury from the clock. That's a good one. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it worked. <laughs> so there are other things we want to get on to because um, you were instrumental with the uh, breaking the story of the grooming gangs back in 2007. And you, you, I remember we spoke about this before because you'd continually tried to get this story out there mm. and you'd faced resistance from the, from the press. Mm. Can, you, can you talk us through what happened mm. there? So um, in the late 1990s, I come across a, a group um, called Coalition for the Removal of Pimping mm. that was set up by a woman called Irene Iverson, who sadly died in the early 2000s, whose daughter was abused into prostitution. Um, I mean, I hate the word grooming, but you have to use it so people understand what you're talking about. It's the most common, common It's the most commonly the moment, understood, yeah. but basically targeted yeah. um, and abused into prostitution. And she was 14, was Fiona, she was very vulnerable and uh, she was being bullied at school and this man just honed in mm. and social services and police didn't want to know and when she was 17 she was um, murdered in a car park in Doncaster by a punter and so that was the life trajectory of Fiona Iverson okay. and her mother started to campaign because the police did not give a damn it was well she's consenting to seeing this man and How old was she? She was 14 when he started abusing her and he fed the line. Fiona was white and, and the abuser was black. And he was saying, your family are racists and that's why they don't want you to see me. But how does consent come in if she's below the age of consent? Well, of course it didn't, but the police didn't care. Um, he, he pulled every trick in the book and the police just kind of went along with it. Right. And I mean, this was, this was a very liberal family, a very kind of, I mean, Irene was a, was a peace campaigner. You know, they weren't telling her not to see this man because he was black. They were telling her that she was too young and that he was a creep, course, which yeah. he was. Um, and so Irene set up this organisation and it was based in Leeds and straight away lots of different parents of girls that had been targeted by these men came forward. And in these small kind of former mill towns yeah. where the demographic, there's the, in, in some of the towns that came forward, there were large numbers of men of Pakistani Muslim origin. And of course, some of the, these men were criminal. They weren't doing it because they were Pakistani. They were doing it because they were criminals. Yeah. Uh, and they were nonsing and abusing these girls because there was a profit to be made. Yes. Um, but of course, the parents, some of whom were racist, saw it in different ways. Yeah. So for some of them, they were saying, um, I told you, didn't I, about immigration? This is what we've got now, abusing our girls. Well, of yeah. course, child abuse, we grow our own. Yeah, yeah. Pl plenty, plenty around and nothing to do with ethnicity. So they were using it as, an, as, as a justification for their own prejudice, basically. Yeah, absolutely, but some of the families, in fact, most of the families, uh, many of whom I talked to, weren't in the slightest bit racist. Yeah. They were concerned about these men, these grown men, 
abusing their girls and putting them on the game. So the police weren't interested. And in many ways, the police said that they weren't interested because they didn't want trouble. Now, the police don't care about being called racist. The police have been called racist plenty. Many of the police are racist, not all, but, but plenty are. Yeah. It wasn't because they were going to be hurt by being called racist. They didn't want the ag. They didn't want the hassle. Hadn't it come down from the top, though, as well? People saying, don't investigate this. Oh, because... oh, totally, totally. But by the time we got to 2004, when it really hit yes. the news, unfortunately, um, the British National Party, a racist party, had kind of controlled the narrative to an extent. Right. Because the parents couldn't get any joy from the police, social services. And so, of course, the BNP were targeting these vulnerable parents at the time and said, yeah. you can talk to us, we'll listen to you. And yes. the parents didn't really know what they were, they were doing in some, in some respects. But then uh, the, I think it was the Chief Constable of West Yorkshire Police put out a directive um, on the eve of a documentary yeah. being um, screened, which, Channel 4, which showed how these grooming gangs were operating and poured scorn on the police for their inaction. Yeah. And the Chief Constable said, we do not want a race riot. I think the Oldham riots had just happened, sure. yeah. and so there was lots of unrest, and therefore the girls with the collateral damage, the programme was pulled. Yeah. Anyway, so I decided that I would look into this, and it was a couple of years later that uh, I approached a Liberal newspaper, mm -hmm. and that's going to be difficult to work out which one. I'm, I'm, I've got a good <coughs> idea of what you're talking about. And, and I was investigating the um, disappearance, and uh, we, a body was never found, but, but certainly murder of a girl called Charlene Downs, who was from a bad family yeah. in Blackpool and uh, about whom nobody cared. Yeah. Um, and definitely there was sexual abuse within her family and the like. And you really don't have to worry about legals on this one, by the way, okay. we are fine. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I talked to the police about what they were doing to investigate this in Blackpool yes. and thought this is a fascinating story because we can then unearth all of the other stories yeah, yeah. that I've been hearing. and. The Liberal newspaper said, no, because it might be seen as racist. And I said, I'm a left-wing, anti-racist, feminist journalist, and I would actually be writing about the disgrace of the way it's been co-opted by the right wing. Yes. And that because we haven't dealt with it, it will be misconstrued as a story about race and ethnicity, which it is not. Yeah, there's a way to write about these things, isn't there, to make yeah. it clear where you're coming from. And guess what? I did manage yeah, to write yeah, about yeah. it in that way. Because I took it to the Sunday Times magazine. Yeah. And we did a piece in there in 2006, 2007. And then, of course, the, the Guardian did take a piece from mm. me after that um, yes. on it. And we did manage to do it in not just a non-racist way, but an anti-racist way, where we, we brought yeah. in the issues about how liberal white racism can actually mean that these criminals just go unchecked yeah. and the girls are left and, and, and nobody um, helps them. But I think people see, was it Sarah Champion who was kicked out of the cabinet for raising the issue, uh, or the I shadow cabinet. Yeah, I think because she wrote in The Sun about it, and The Sun doesn't have a great track record in looking at this from the point of view of this is about child abuse as opposed to this is about Muslim grooming gangs. But she wasn't coming from a racist perspective. She wasn't at all. I mean, the, the phrase Muslim grooming gangs is a really, I think it's a really racist term. Right. This is not about Muslims. This is about grooming gangs. And you have to look at the demographic because, of course, the the, the Pakistani men that were knee-deep in this, in, mm. the, in the old mill towns, back when I first started looking at it, had been dealing in heroin. Because right. like I say, they were criminals. Yeah. Um, 
And of course, heroin became too hot to handle, so their merchandise became girls. Right. And it's in the same way as we can look at the history of different groups of, uh, uh, of criminals, be they white, Maltese, Jamaican, yeah. taking up particular crimes because that's the road that is open yeah. to them at the time. Well, it's about applying the law to everyone. You know, of course. It's, it's as simple as that, really. But, but I suppose when, when it becomes embroiled in race politics, then it, it is harder to, to at least not have your work exploited by the kinds of people that actually that you oppose, you know? Totally, and the thing is that what we needed to do was run a piece in this Liberal newspaper really early on mm. so that it didn't become a story about Muslim or Asian grooming gangs because we would never have used that, that uh, language. You know, we would never have laid out the story like that. Yeah. And we didn't in the pieces that I did. But then, of course, the Times took over the story yeah. with some great investigation. And it did become a little bit along that kind of narrative. Um, and, and, and some of its coverage was criticised. I think some of it was criticised unfairly and yeah. some of it was banged to rights. But what should have happened is that the Liberal press should have taken this up immediately. I think you raise a really important point here is that again and again, I think uh, the, the left wing press or the press that consider themselves left wing often leave things alone mm -hmm. and it gets owned by yeah. some quite nefarious people. And, and then it becomes impossible to even talk about these issues without being branded as such. And, oh, yeah. and that isn't how it should be. Completely, because, you know, if you actually want to um, expose um, an atrocity mm. and of course journalists should run towards the news not run away from it yeah, yeah. so when I was looking at um, the issues of convicted sex offenders who identify as transgender in prisons mm -hmm. you know I wanted to expose that because we have a problem with sexual violation and abuse of our most vulnerable uh, women which is you know women in prison yeah. and of course it would have been brilliant had um, the Guardian or Observer run the piece that I ended up doing yes. for the male, yeah. but they didn't. Now, this was a story about rape and sexual abuse. This was a story about convicted sex offenders being given carte blanche to, to, to abuse with impunity. Yes. It wasn't about anything of course, else. Of course. Um, but of course, you know, there's, there are certain, um, you know, there's a level of cowardice in the liberal press at the moment yeah. that means that you do actually end up either deciding, well, I won't write anything, about an issue that I've campaigned for all my life, yeah. or I'll take it to a particular publication whose values I don't necessarily share. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I have, I have been accused of these things. When I talk to a right-wing person on a certain platform, people say, you're the same as that yeah. person. I'm just over all of that, and I don't even think, you know, there are some people I won't talk to yeah. when they go too far. But, you know, I think you, you did a very interesting tweet the other day about how, you know, stop asking me why I write for the Mail, start asking why The Guardian, won't publish what I need to write. And I think this is now becoming, Suzanne Moore now is published in more right-leaning publications. Of course, and then you, you bring a left-wing feminist view to that paper, which I think is all for the good. There are some publications I wouldn't touch with a barge pole because you literally are just buying into their editorial. But most now, mo mainstream media, what does having an editorial mean anymore? Yeah. I mean, if I read an article in the mail, I will read what the person is saying in that article. And I don't get clouded by this idea that, you know, they must be paid for by some person on a high who's pulling the strings. And there are good journalists across, writing across the board. And there are some extremely bad journalists writing across the board as yes. well. Yes. So, but I mean, do you ever, I mean, you raise it in the book, actually, is, is that there's often accusations against uh, your brand of feminism because you end up on certain issues allying with, say, the Christian right on anti-pornography stance, that kind of thing, and you raise that issue. Is that a very unfair accusation that people... <coughs> well, 
Okay, so there's two things here. First of all, I have a line in the sand and I will not sit on a platform with um, those that wish to um, criminalise abortion um, and think that me being in a same-sex relationship is akin to marrying your vacuum cleaner, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that's... I was going to say, because the Christian right would not approve of your lifestyle. No, so I, I will not work with those people to give them any more grist to the mill yeah. because I'm passionately opposed to what they are trying to do legislatively and across the board uh, in terms of, of, of social norms and, yeah. and politics and the like. So I will never ally myself, myself with those that wish to, for example, um, outlaw porn because it shows that women are sluts and they should be married before anyone gets naked. I mean, yeah. we do not share the same aims and objectives, and I think that those people will do harm um, to women and girls as opposed to help liberate us. Sure. So I don't want to work with censors um, in any way. Yeah. I don't think that's the way to go. But there are some women, and I will not call them feminists, who are women's rights activists, who are mainly in the US, and they've allied themselves with, for example, the Heritage Foundation. Mm -hmm. And they work on assisting particular bits of legislation that might be, for example, anti-transgender. Yeah. For the simple reason that these people are also anti-lesbian and anti-gay. Yeah. So of course they're going to be anti-transgender. Yeah. Now I want nothing at all to do with that. And I do not know any feminist that would ever decide that this is a single issue campaign. It's immoral. And it's unethical to think, I don't want single-sex bathrooms or trans women in women's prisons. So therefore, I will go to bigots and help them yeah. push forward legislation that will also affect other people. I don't want bigots working on this issue. It's a very simplistic understanding of it. I mean, it's the equivalent to uh, if some nasty racist talks about the importance of free speech because they want to be able to say what mm -hmm. their racist things. I support free speech under all circumstances but that doesn't mean that I approve of anything that he's got to say do you see what I mean so that that's always bundled together well yeah I mean I you know I, I sometimes get um, accused of, of um, allying with homophobic bigots because I refuse to accept that there is a gay gene yeah now I speak about this from a wholly feminist perspective and from a left-wing perspective yes. immutability has never helped black people for example yeah, or yeah. Jews it, it doesn't actually help to say, I can't help it, I was born this way. Right. Right. N nobody protected Jews or black people in those circumstances. I am not going to ask to be tolerated and I'm not going to be... To I refuse to use the conservative argument that I was born that way in order to stop the bigots legislating against me or kicking my head in in the street. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because I'm really interested in this idea, because I think the question of whether there's a gay gene or not is a question of fact. It either is or, or it isn't. And they haven't found and, it yet. And they haven't found it yet. It's interesting because you're talking about it almost in strategic uh, terms, and I've spoken to many gay people, and I find, and I don't know why this is, but I find that the vast majority of gay men do believe that they were born that way mm -hmm. for whatever reason, uh, it's only from lesbians that I've spoken to who will absolutely reject that mm. and say, they don't go so far as to say it's a choice, but they often say this is it's a social construct. Well, why do you think there's that distinction? Or think, is that just my experience? Well, I think that there is, um, I mean, gay men are less politically active and were less politically active mm. during the, um, the gay liberation movement and also wanted more of a quiet life right. in order to stop being targeted and harassed by police in the early days, yes. pre AIDS, of course, which then brought on a whole 
a new wave of bigotry um, yeah. itself, didn't it? But but gay, gay men have often actually used that very leave us alone, tolerate us argument. Whereas what lesbians have said is, look, although the bigotry towards us is, is hellish, we actually benefit from not being in heterosexual relationships. Right. Well, you describe as political lesbian. Is, well, is I mean, right? it, it, it's, a, it's a very misunderstood term. So yeah. it just means being political about your lesbianism. It doesn't mean thinking, I'll tell you what, I'll stop fancying men, I'll start fancying women yes. so that men don't get any sex and I can brand myself a lesbian for the sake of it. Yes. It's, it's women who, of course, um, are attracted to women and, and do not wish to be heterosexual because they're not attracted to men, yes. but who actually refuse to go down the line of being born that way. Because you're not born fancying the midwife, are you? Well, I mean, you're not born mincing and waving a, a pride flag. Well, maybe some are, but not many I know. You don't have a sexuality. You don't have a sexual yeah. identity when you're born. Well, I'm interested in that, though, because I do, for instance, I, 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 to be honest, I don't care whether it comes from ke chemicals in the womb, which some people have now suggested, or whether it is to do with uh, socialisation or whatever. I also know that I did not choose to be exclusively attracted to my own sex, right? So I don't. So I suppose what I bulk at is the idea that we've chosen to be gay because yes. I don't think that's true. I understand that, and I don't. And I think that the word choice, which I have used before, and wish I hadn't, is the wrong word. But unfortunately, there's no other word that can substitute because it's either that you're born that way or yeah. you're not. And if you're not, then what it has to be is a very complex mix of circumstance, of opportunity, yeah. of socialization, of very early experiences. Um, and of course, our sexual desire, our sexu sexuality is extremely hardwired. Yeah. But if you think about um, those, we call them hasbians, women who... Never heard that. Well, w women, who are, <laughs> women who are lesbians and who then you know, uh, fall in love with some bloke and... Oh, I see, okay, yeah. You know, forever, a heter happily heterosexual. And we call them yesterday. Ah, uh, right, yesterday, yeah. <laughs> and of course, that, that often happens with your people too. <laughs> but then, yeah. but then there's, there, there are many, many, many women yeah. who are quite happily heterosexual, quite enjoying the odd romp with her husband. I can't believe I've just said the word romp, it's great. great. And, and then... Back, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then meet a woman... Uh, with whom they fall madly in love, lust, or a combination of the two, yeah. and that's it, they're lesbians. Well, how do we explain them? Well, somebody might say, well, they're obviously bisexual, yeah. but they would never look at a man again. Yeah, well, sexuality is complicated, I, I guess, is the main thing, but, but most of the gay men I know, though, are sort of predominantly... Mm. Maybe there is something different about male and female sexuality. A lot, a lot of the studies about uh, the, the chemicals in the womb, and I'm not an expert, tend to be focused on men, which is why men tend to be, gay men tend to be the younger brother, for instance. Which, which is a, a fascinating thing, I think, but I don't know the answer. There's a, there's a really lovely um, scientist um, who I actually quote in the book, um, Kazi Rahman, who has been looking at this issue. Yeah. He's been looking for the gay gene or looking at ways in which we kind of reach, you know, our kind of sexual orientation yes. for a long time. And we disagree profoundly on this. But he comes out with some really interesting stuff. And I mean, he wrote a book uh, co-wrote a book called Born Gay. Yes, that's the book I'm referring to, actually. Right. Yeah, but, but you still, you read it and there's no facts in it. I mean, there's no, <laughs> no disrespect to Kazi, who I really like. Yeah. And his work's exemplary. He does lots of great work on mental health issues facing young lesbians and gays. But I think the reason why people are so desperate to find um, a causal link is because then young people who are being bullied mm. by anti-gay bigots can say, I'm gay because my mum took 
ex-drug when I was in the womb, and yeah. that's why, so stop bullying me. But it doesn't work like that, unless we're proud and say, do you know what, it doesn't matter a damn why we are lesbian or gay. Yeah. We just are. Stop looking for it. Why are you looking for a cause? Why do we need to do this? Yeah, yeah. And so, like I say, there's either a gay gene or there isn't, and trust me, they've been looking for it for a very long yeah. time. Yeah, but that's the point you make is, is actually that it doesn't matter. And I think the nervousness around it is that if it is perceived to be a choice, then that validates, say, the extreme Christian right, who say, well, you're just sinning then, aren't you? Yeah, so the thing that we say to the extreme Christian right is, do you know what? I know you don't care whether I was born gay or not. Yeah. I know you don't care whether or not I am choosing this. You just want me to stop doing it. Yeah. And the reason I know is because I went to gay conversion therapy yeah, in Colorado. You, you mentioned this in the book. I was fascinated by that. I didn't know this about you either. So you went undercover. I did. Spoke to a therapist. For a week. That's impressive. I, you a good actor? Yeah. Because yeah. I would have let it slip, I think. I would have laughed or something. I would have. I was deep in persona. Okay. I, I Mary, used... you were called. I was called Mary, um, and no, I wasn't called Mary. I was called Joe. But it was based on. But it was Mary. based on someone I knew called Mary. Yeah, yeah. And the only way that I could stop myself from actually crying in this pseudo therapy, when this so-called therapist was going on about my mother, because yeah. they have to really destroy everything about. Oh, they say it's to do with trauma, right? But That's yeah, right, yeah. and and. You know, I'm very old-fashioned, right? Working-class Northeast. No one disses my mother. Yeah, so <laughs> even when you're to, in character. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I had to actually channel Jeanette Winterson's mother. Right. In order to not care that she was really slagging off this character's mother. Yeah. But it was pretty hard, hard going. And I'm a tough person, but it really, even though I've been an out and proud lesbian for more than four decades, it shook me up like nothing on earth. I mean, these people are very nasty, but they did not, I'm telling you from experience, they did not care how I'd come to be a lesbian. They just wanted me to stop. And that's why we can't play the biggest game. We can't say we're born this way, we can't help it, just because they're saying that we could yeah. choose not to be. Because what they mean is we will force you to stop. And in this small town in Colorado, that's what they were doing. The therapy isn't to get you to be attracted to men, yeah, because that's not going to happen, right? Right, right. And they know that, do they? They know that. The therapy is to actually convince you that if you don't live a good Christian life, in other words, a heterosexual one, yes. you're going to hell. Yeah. Well, that's sort of what... Is that what Milo Yiannopoulos is saying now these days? He's saying he's become straight and that you can choose it. I don't know. It was incoherent what I saw him say the other we day. We shouldn't play the bigots game. Right. Just because they say something doesn't mean we will. For example, the most extreme religious fundamentalists will say that pornography is bad for children. They are talking about it from a completely opposite standpoint to me, yeah. and that's why I'm not going to agree with them. Yeah, so you can end up uh, agreeing on the end point, but you just don't agree on why you have those views. Exactly. Yeah. That's really interesting. When you talk about those sort of Christian fundamentalists and, and you use the word nasty there, do you think it is always nasty? Because sometimes I get the feeling that they do genuinely believe that they're on the side of the angels. They do genuinely believe that it's for your own good and they're trying to help. Yes. It's, just, it's just delusional. I think the fundamentalists are nasty. Okay. Yeah. I think that they are seriously... They do not care about the damage, the psychological and even physical harm that might meet um, someone who is enmeshed within, yeah. whether it's the Pentecostal church um, or, or other kind of religious fundamentalist um, groupings, yes. which, you know, they're, they're cults. 
And, and the, the damage, of course, is most profound when we're talking about women and children. Mm -hmm. I mean, this outfit that I went to in Colorado, um, you know, the, I, I had to book into the Christian Hotel okay. that was affiliated with this counselling centre. It's like I was watched from every corner. Wow. I had to actually put a disguise on to sneak over to Chipotle to get a margarita. <laughs> because, you know, the, the, the hotel was dry, of course. Of course yeah. And, you know, <laughs> trust me when I tell you that you need drink after a, oh, I bet. a, a, yeah. a daily session like that. But they, they watch you and, and they, they send children to these, um, to these awful therapists. And I met some of them that had been through this for real. Yeah. And my God, you know, how they had survived, I don't know. These are incredibly courageous people. But imagine pretending to be a loving father or mother and sending your child to be told that they are scum, pervert, weirdos, worse than dirt under their feet. And they can only be welcomed back into the family if they do something that's going to cause them daily distress. Right. I think that's pretty nasty. Yeah, yeah. Did you have, did you come out to them in the process or did you wait until you got away? My plan was that at the very last session yeah, with you, Kelly, yeah. I would say, actually, I'm a journalist. You can look me up and here's who I am. Because yeah. she loved me. Oh, yeah. she loved me, the therapist. Did you have any affection for her at all by no. the end? No, okay, fine. <laughs> and did you do that? Did you open up to her at the end? I was, no, I, I felt too unsettled right. by the end. I felt very, very vulnerable. And I actually went to the airport Denver Airport to get my overnight flight back yeah. and this really isn't like me but I told the cabin crew yes. who was sitting waiting at the gate with us because there was some problem with the, the loos on board yeah. she asked if I'd been on holiday and I said no I'm a journalist and I've just been undercover and I've just been to gay conversion therapy I mean I've no idea where it came from I never talked to people at airports or well I mean you maybe you, you had to get it out I was just I clearly wasn't well yeah. <laughs> and, but she was she said what and she shouts Declan, Declan, come here. And this little bloke minced over in yeah. his uniform. <laughs> and he went, what? She said, tell him what I've just heard. <laughs> and I says, well, I've just been to gay convert. He went, oh, he said, love, where are you sitting? And I says, well, unfortunately, I'm, I'm on a row. I got here too late for an aisle seat. Yeah. Trust me when I tell you, Declan looked after me on that I'll flight. <laughs> there was, the booze flowed and the, the, the three course meal was straight from first class. Amazing. But. No, it, it, I didn't tell her, but when I got back, I sent an email and said, yeah. here's who I am. And she was absolutely horrified and terrified, and so she should have been. Yeah. It wasn't that I felt uh, uh, vindictive towards her at all. I wanted her to never do that again. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So um, one final thing I want to ask you about, which is something you, you talk about in the book, is you make a... a is your appearances on various university campuses, and you, you're quite known now, I think, for uh, getting invited and then having your invitation cancelled. And you make a very important distinction, I think, uh, between no platforming and de-platforming. Uh, do you want to just talk us through that? Because it seems to have affected you more than most people. Yeah, thankfully now there's plenty of people that have, uh, you know, taken up the mantle. So, yeah. uh, you know, they're, they're busy no platforming and deplatforming others. Yes. Okay, so I was no platformed by the NUS. Yeah. Um, and that Just was to in, clarify for people, it means you get put on a list of, uh, say, fascists. fascists. Yeah, yeah. So in 2008, they decided that I was, you know, to be put on this list um, alongside 
fascist and terrorist groups right. and a couple of individuals like Marie Le Pen. You know, I mean, just someone uh, with, with extreme right-wing views. Yeah. And clearly, as a feminist activist all my life with left-wing views, this was quite incredible. Yes. Um, and then it went from the NUS not being willing to share a platform with me, which suited me fine, yeah. to um, being invited, um, being advertised all over campus, getting a full house, because I'm, I'm only ever going there to talk about violence against women yeah, and yeah. how to ca counter it. And actually, students want to hear this stuff. Sure. Um, and then publicly disinvited, publicly deplatformed, told that I'm no longer welcome, it going everywhere over social media, the yeah. humiliation, the disappointment for those that wanted to come along, even if just to argue with me. But it's not about the subject of your talk ever, Never. is it? No. no, it's me. In fact, I became, I think it was the 2013 NUS... LGBT um, conference, yeah. the motion was uh, Julie Bindle is vile. That was the motion. That's incredible. That was the motion. Julie Bindle is vile, and that was what well, went in the official document. That's just infantile. Totally. And, and of course, you know, the, the deplatforming is very different from no platforming. Yes. No one has a right no. to be invited to play. Why would you? I do all of this work. Um, as part of my activism. So it's not paid work, mm. it's campaigning work. Well, you're doing them a favour. You would have thought, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah. I mean, that, but I think I agree with you entirely. No one has a right to be on a, a platform, absolutely not. But I, but I worry about the no platforming policies because it means that some people with just very mainstream views are never even considered. So we don't actually know the extent of it because they're never invited in the first no, place. No, you're right. I mean, of course, it's a concern. But, but for me, it, it makes me very angry when those that are in favour of this censorious and bullying behaviour say, oh, Julie Bindle, no platformed again, is she? And he or she is writing about it in two national newspapers. Yeah, well, one, I'm a journalist, yeah, so that's what I do. Yeah. And two, actually, myself and other women to whom this has happened, who aren't journalists, academics, for example, Selena Todd, yeah. Kathleen Stock, others, um, Raquel Rosario Sanchez, who lost her you know, PhD place effectively um, because of the bullies, I write about it and speak about it because I can. Yeah. Because there are so many other women who we've never heard of, who are 20 years old or a bit older maybe, who have been kept out of feminist events because they're told that they'll be transphobes, whorephobes if they even go. Yeah. I've been told by young students that just retweeting an article of mine or sending it around their feminist society where I've written about rape, that they're told that they will be kicked out of the group if they do this again. So they are being bullied and hectored, censored and controlled yes. because certain individuals, myself included, are seen as toxic and beyond redemption. And so that's why I speak about it, write about it. And that doesn't mean I haven't been deplatformed. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that they haven't had a terrible and material effect on my life and work. Yes, and, and also, it's, in a sense, it's not just about what happens to you. It's the message it sends to those young women uh, that you'd better not talk about the stuff that Julie Bindle oh, talks yeah. about. You know, and that... Oh, yes, completely. I mean, there's a young, a young student um, who I knew through her parents. We were great friends. I, I loved talking to her whenever I visited the house, you know, intergenerational feminist politics. Mm. And um, you know, she came to a couple of my launches and talks and she once retweeted me, again, that about violence it. against women. Yeah. And she was piled on like nothing on yeah. earth. Yeah. And I had to beg her to block me on yes. Twitter because that would have been the end of her student um, career. Yeah. That would have been it. Yeah. Um, so, so if I don't speak out and if I let them get away with it, 
it means that all of those young women will think that they're done for. But if they see others standing up against it, then they know who to come to if they want just a little bit of advice. And that's why I wrote the book, because yep. I actually want young women to know that we will have their backs, that we will take a bullet for them, that we will stand in front of them. When the bullies come after them, this is a movement. You know, yes, it's scary and they don't have anywhere like the resources I've got. Um, you know, I've got an established career. Um, I've got a home. I've got a friendship circle. They can't destroy me, but they can destroy young feminists who are speaking out about the things that affect them on a daily basis, prostitution, pornography, sexual objectification and violence. And they need to be able to speak. Well, I think that's a fantastic note to end on. And this is the book, Feminism for Women, The Real Route to Liberation. So please check it out. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. Thank you. This has been Free Speech Nation, the podcast with me, Andrew Doyle and Judy Bindle. If you like the show, please do like and subscribe and tell other people and uh, join me next week for another fabulous guest. Goodbye. <laughs>